KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego Art Power is presenting Indian fusion band Red Bharat, mixing Indian bhangra rhythms, hip-hop, and funk music, March 23rd at the Epstein Family Amphitheater. Tickets and information about upcoming concerts and events at artpower.ucsd.edu. Good morning. I'm Debbie Cruz. It's Thursday, September 29th. Pandemic protections for renters are ending, leaving some worried about their future in San Diego. More on that next, but first, let's do the headlines. After a month of protests in Sacramento, farm workers will have expanded union rights in California. Governor Gavin Newsom signed AB 2183 yesterday. It allows for mail-in ballot voting during union elections, in addition to the in-person process. Newsom had indicated he wasn't going to sign the bill, but says a deal was reached to clarify language around its implementation and voting integrity. The governor also signed two bills aimed at increasing housing for low- and middle-income Californians. The legislation allows for homes to be built on commercial sites currently zoned for uses like retail, office, or parking lots. It also will expedite the process for new developments State Senate President Pro Tem Tony Atkins called the bills game-changers for producing desperately needed housing. A group of Vietnam veterans are visiting the memorials built for their service and sacrifice thanks to a local nonprofit. This morning, 85 Navy veterans are heading to Washington, D.C., part of the Honor Flight San Diego program. Organizers say the veterans dubbed Sea Wolves are the most decorated naval unit from the Vietnam War. They were pilots, door gunners, and maintenance workers. Honor Flight San Diego says this is the first group of all Vietnam veterans that are taking on a memorial trip. From KPBS, you're listening to San Diego News Now. Stay with me for more of the local news you need. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, We've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. The San Diego County Sheriff's Department says 17 people have died this year in custody. That's one person fewer than last year's record of 18. But justice advocates say that number is wrong and are demanding accountability from authorities. KPBS reporter Tanya Thorne has the story. Advocates continue to demand accountability for the in-custody deaths that have seen an uptick this year. They want District Attorney Summer Steffen to investigate and prosecute over the in-custody deaths or resign. The Sheriff's Department says there have been 17 in-custody deaths this year, but they are not counting an inmate who was granted a compassionate release to a local hospital. 
We're definitely really worried that as the in-custody death rates go up and it looks more embarrassing to the Sheriff's Department, that they will find ways to cover up these deaths and try to explain them away. That's Dr. Darwin Fishman with the Racial Justice Coalition of San Diego. He says that as the number of in-custody deaths goes up, the San Diego County Sheriff's Department is looking for excuses. Fishman says elected officials in the local, state, and federal levels must get involved in reform efforts for jail deaths to go down in the county. Tanya Thorne, KPBS News. After a long meeting in front of an overflow crowd Tuesday night, Temecula City Council decided against advancing an anti-abortion proposal. KPBS reporter Kitty Alvarado was at that meeting. People descended on Temecula City Hall Tuesday, some to protest and others to support a proposal to declare the city a sanctuary for the unborn. The council voted four to one against putting the sanctuary resolution on a future agenda. The proposal came from council member Jessica Alexander. What do D stand for death here in our city? Marianne Edwards is the longest serving member on the council. You have to listen to the residents. And um, clearly we had 84% of the emails that we received were opposed to having it on the agenda. Mayor Matt Ron says the proposal failed because it lacked clarity. And he said there's a problem with how resolutions are presented in council meetings. I could propose anything I want to, but it doesn't mean that we have the authority to work in that space. And that, he says, could have put the city in legal jeopardy. What happens next is our community does need to heal. Kitty Alvarado, KPBS News. Emergency COVID-19 tenant protections are set to end tomorrow in the city of San Diego. KPBS reporter Jacob Ayer says some San Diego renters are worried their living situations could be in jeopardy. Rahuma Abdi is a mother of six who rents an apartment in City Heights. She's lived there for decades and says she loves the community of fellow immigrants and refugees. Yeah, so I grew up in City Heights as well and when my family was renting, it looks like community, it looks like a farm where like all families stay together. But now she's worried more of her friends and neighbors will be forced to move as emergency COVID-19 tenant protections are set to phase out on September 30th. But now because of city is getting expensive because of the lack of protection that we have, everybody's like spreading out and moving out and being displaced. Rahuma works at Partnership for the Advancement of New Americans or PANA. Asma Abdi is PANA's policy associate. She says she wants an extension of tenant protections and is urging the San Diego City Council to take action. It means that many families, even if they do absolutely everything right, they pay their rent on time, they don't violate their lease agreement, they can still be at risk for eviction. And so it creates a lot of uncertainty in our community um, and people don't know whether or not they'll remain in their homes. Once the no-fault protections expire, the city will be left with its tenants' right to know ordinance. It requires landlords to provide at least one of nine listed reasons before terminating a lease with a renter who has lived at a property for more than two years. San Diego City Council President Shawnee Lo Rivera says he submitted a potential set of updates for the tenant protection ordinance to the city attorney's office. Any protection that goes away that makes it easier for folks to be um, evicted and put out into the rental market um, is one that creates added vulnerability and that concerns me. We are hoping that the tenant protections ordinance will provide stronger protections for our low income, elderly, 
disabled and terminally ill tenants, some of our most vulnerable community members, um, and allow them the right to relocation payments in the event that they are evicted. Current state law, with some exceptions, limits rent increases at 10%. While that sounds like a lot, Lucinda Lilly of the Southern California Rental Housing Association says landlords have also faced difficult circumstances over the past few years. When we couldn't terminate a tenancy even if there was an extremely bad actor on a property. So rental housing providers have really risen to this. Lilly wants solutions for struggling renters, but stands against any form of extending the protections. This isn't going to result in an avalanche of people getting termination notices for no reason. Um, just cause is just cause, and if a renter, if an owner needs to move into a property, then they need to move into a property. If they need to sell because they can no longer afford to support the property, then they need to be able to do that. While time is of the essence for many renters, it could be a while before any form of the TPO can be enacted. With the rising cost of overall living, that's pushing many tenants over the edge. I'm likely I have four bedrooms, but some other families who cannot afford to rent four, like four bedrooms. That's why there's a lot of hidden homelessness in our community where like families are doubling up in one bedroom, two bedroom because of they cannot afford to rent. Pana says the updated ordinance would close loopholes that landlords can use to wrongfully evict families. It would also require landlords to provide relocation assistance to tenants who face no-fault evictions. Jacob Ayer, KPBS News. Coming up, kids as young as four years old have access to transitional kindergarten. And now, thanks to new legislation, after-school care is also an option. More on that just after the break. I'm Beth Accomando, KPBS arts reporter and host of the Cinema Junkie podcast. I'm also a geeky gourmet who likes to bake food themed to the movies I watch, like chocolate blood to savor with Dracula, or an extra chewy Wookiee cookie to enjoy with Star Wars. I'm geeky about the things I love, and that makes me a public radio geek as well. I love being able to connect with audiences just like you through TV, radio, the web, and podcasts like the one you're listening to right now. So, are you a KPBS geek? If so, then I'm asking you to get in touch with your inner nerd and become a member of KPBS today. Just go to kpbs.org and click the blue Give Now button and make a donation. That's right. Let's geek out together about the things we love. Kids as young as four years old can go to transitional kindergarten in California. But those young kids couldn't go to after-school care. That changed this week after Governor Newsom signed a new law. KPBS reporter Claire Tregeser has details on what this means for local families. Sarah LaPietra has been figuring out the afternoons for her four-year-old son, Teddy, who is a transitional kindergartner. 
Initially, we were told that they had new after school care classrooms coming and that they would be up and running by the first day of school, which was such great news. Then the news was not so great because Teddy is not four years, nine months old. He couldn't go to aftercare. So um, we just scrambled and found a babysitter um, off of Facebook <laughs> to um help for some of the days and you know other days we just juggled having a four-year-old in the house while we did our work for five hours a day. But that should now change with the signing of the education omnibus bill. Courtney Baltiski is the director of advocacy for the San Diego YMCA. Any child on uh, school, so that includes TK now, uh, is eligible for school-age licensed care. Many schools get out at 2 p.m. and noon on Wednesdays, making it difficult for working parents to send their kids to TK. The law changes that, but Baltiski says it should have been done before the school year began. This was a situation that potentially could have been avoided um, to add to that toxic stress that so many households are experiencing. Stress like what has been happening in the La Pietra household for the past two weeks. It kind of feels like the first few months of the pandemic where you're just kind of forced to juggle everything and handle everything on your own and left to kind of fend for yourself. Claire Tregesser, KPBS News. Jews across San Diego County continue to celebrate their community's most high holy days. This week, Rosh Hashanah marks the new year. KPBS education reporter M.G. Perez has more on students who are sharing their faith. They call themselves the Jew Club. It's an untraditional name. They say honors their very traditional faith. The students meet once a week at lunchtime on the campus of Patrick Henry High School while they celebrate the new year 5783. They are also committed to educating their non-Jewish friends on the importance and relevance of their religion at this time of year. Ben Matthews is a senior. I've had a lot of friends that have been more curious rather than more abrupt with their conversation and language towards me. So I'm really excited to really just keep educating, actually, and keep getting out there. It's a lot of fun to be part of the holidays. Those holidays continue with the most holy day of atonement, Yom Kippur, which begins at sundown October 4th. M.G. Perez, KPBS News. A local tech giant brought the world of science and engineering to Hoover High School. Yesterday, Qualcomm and the San Diego Workforce Partnership hosted the event. KPBS science and technology reporter Thomas Fudge says the goal was to convince students from underrepresented backgrounds to aspire to STEM careers. Careers in science and engineering are plentiful in San Diego, and some of these ninth graders at Hoover High are looking for a path to get there. STEM Day at Hoover brought the kids together with some engineers from Qualcomm whose backgrounds could be very challenging. My high school was very overpopulated and underfunded, and there was a lot of gang violence going on. As manufacturing engineer Olivia Carrizales, originally from Chicago, who now prototypes technology for cell phones and computers for Qualcomm, 
Her message got through to one Hoover High School student, Daniela Martinez. She just had to really motivate herself because everyone there just like didn't really care. And she pushed herself. She said she kept trying. One of the organizers from the Workforce Partnership said a key to getting kids excited about science and engineering is showing them adults who are excited about it. And hopefully that's what was happening at Hoover High School. Thomas Fudge, KPBS News. PEN America recently announced the winners of their 2022 Prison Writing Awards. The awards recognize exceptional works from incarcerated writers that will be published in a forthcoming anthology. The first place winner for both the fiction and nonfiction categories is San Diegan Frank Kensaku Saragossa. Saragossa was homeless in San Diego for several years before being taken into federal custody on drug-related charges. He was released last month and spoke with KPBS arts producer and editor Julia Dixon-Evans. Here's their conversation. You were just recognized with two prison writing awards from PEN America, both for works that you wrote while incarcerated. Before we talk more about your writing process, can you give us an idea of what it is you write about? Sure. Uh, yes, I was uh, recognized by winning these awards, and it was a, a big surprise to me. Uh, I started writing in prison about my life in addiction and about my life living homeless on the streets. Um, so I guess those are the topics I really cover in my writing, homelessness, addiction, and incarceration. And as you wrote these pieces, did you know at the time that telling these stories would benefit or reach more people than just you? At first, when I wrote these stories, I was really doing it for myself. Um, I used to be a college professor, um, and then I worked in social services for several years. I was in recovery for several years. And so from my perspective, I had a, I had a normal life, um, and I was just trying to do the best I could in the world. Uh, and then one day, it felt to me as if Six years had gone by, and I find myself in a federal prison, facing many, many years, uh, a sentence of many, many years, and I didn't know how, how that happened. Um, and I had these memories of living on the streets, of getting high all the time, of the psychosis that comes with that, and of all the things I had to do to keep getting high. And it was just... You know, they would come out in dreams. They would come out in these memories that would just intrude at these strange moments. And so I just began writing them down kind of in a journal. Um, and then after a certain point, I decided that I really wanted these writings to find some kind of a life because I realized that what I was writing about was a community of people and experiences of people um, that are really difficult and that not many people write about. And so I thought this needs an audience. And so I was really trying to find an audience when I heard about the Penn Prison Writing Awards. So Life in Pieces is your work of fiction, and it's a patchwork of those fragmented memories of homelessness in San Diego. Can I ask you to read a little from the beginning of that? They call it the East Village. That made me laugh at first. I lived in Manhattan, and I know what the East Village is. This is not the East Village. I mean, it's got that space for art. It's got a cool performance space. It's got cool new bars and restaurants. It's got a gritty industrial vibe. There's a lot of new construction. But if you go far enough south and far enough east to the very corner of downtown, right where the East Village hits Barrio Logan on the south and Golden Hill on the east, 
where Vinnie's is, St. Vincent de Paul's, and the Neil Good Day Center is, and the Alpha Project tent, that's San Diego Skid Row. It's the heart of darkness. It's where homeless people go to shoot up right in the street, out in the open. It's where everything goes down. So one of the things evident in your writing is this distinct relationship you have with the streets of San Diego, particularly in this fiction piece. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Well, it's interesting because, um, at least for me, being unhoused, um, I live a life that's out in the open and on the streets. And it's funny because when I was housed in San Diego, um, I would go to the restaurants on the same streets. I had friends who lived in condos and apartments on the same streets. Um, and so I would walk to work or to Petco Park or to wherever I was going and walk on the exact same streets that I walked on when I became homeless. Um, but then when I was living on the streets, the same streets felt really different. All of a sudden there was, uh, there was so much more detail, so much more variety and so much more that they weren't just a way to get from point A to point B anymore. They became places where whole lives were lived, whole communities were formed and all kinds of things went down, transactions, commerce, relationships, all kinds of things. Let's also talk about that line between truth and honesty, between fiction and nonfiction. What drove you to call this work fiction? Well, I think I mentioned earlier that this came back to me in dreams um, and uh, in memories that would intrude on me very unexpectedly and in times when I didn't want them. Because um, early on when I was first incarcerated, I wanted to try to put all of this behind me and pretend it never happened. Um, so as I started to try to write it down, what became clear to me is um, I didn't remember if things happened in this particular order or in a different order. I didn't remember if, uh, if I said something or if somebody else said something. And then I also realized that, you know, when you're unhoused and you're on the streets and you're high all the time, or at least when I was high all the time, there'd be days and days on end where I wouldn't sleep. Um, and my life was in constant crisis and I wasn't eating regularly. And so I can't trust my memory or my cognition under those circumstances. And at the same time, because of using crystal meth on a daily basis, my mind was also in constant psychosis. And so you definitely can't trust what you think or what you remember under those circumstances. So I thought the only thing I can do is write what I believe to be true, represent my life and my experiences to the best of my ability, but I can't hold myself responsible for making sure that everything I say is factually correct because there's no way I can check. All I can do is do my best to tell the truth, but then just acknowledge the fact that um, my work is just right at that place where fiction and nonfiction meet. Um, and what I strive for is honesty, but I can't necessarily strive for factual uh, factuality. I wanted to go back um, to something you were saying earlier when we were talking about how did you know you wanted your writing to reach people outside of um, prison? The hope that was represented in what you had said there for someone who is in federal prison is, is remarkable um, to want an audience and then to achieve it. 
how do you think you were able to muster that hope? Um, it's hard because the thing about being in prison is that you are cut off from society. Because I was locked up during COVID. The entire time I was locked up, there were no visits. And so I guess if I didn't have hope that I could write and possibly get published, then I would have no hope at all. It gave me an opportunity to imagine a world bigger than my prison cell. And really, that's what I want. You know, I want my work to have a life of its own. And I want my work to reach people. I want to talk about and I want people to, to read about what is it like living unhoused on the streets. I want people to know a little bit more about individuals who become homeless um, and the communities that we form and the lives that we lead and the choices that we make and the reasons we make them. You know, um, I'm not trying to explain or justify anything. I'm just trying to tell the truth as I see it. And I hope that that truth is able to connect me with people in the world, not make me different or separate from them. Frank, thank you so much. Oh, thank you. That was formerly incarcerated San Diegan Frank Hinsaku Saragosa, winner of two 2022 Pan American Prison Writing Awards, speaking with KPBS arts producer and editor Julia Dixon-Evans. You can read an excerpt from Saragosa's work on our website, and the anthology will be published this December. That's it for the podcast today. As always, you can find more San Diego news online at kpbs.org. I'm Debbie Cruz. Thanks for listening and have a great day. KPBS On Demand is supported by the San Diego County Toyota Dealers, whose commitment to customers extends to giving back to the community and who are proud to support the City of San Diego lifeguards with their important role of keeping our beaches safe. Toyota, let's go places.